Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Democrats want to retain control of the Senate in 2022, the path goes through Pennsylvania with a retiring Republican incumbent and a state that voted for President Biden. It's seen as one of the most likely pickups. My guest this week is Connor Lamb. He's a Marine Corps veteran, currently the congressman from Pennsylvania's 17th district and a candidate for the United States Senate. Democrat Connor Lamb with a stunning upset. What should Democrats take away from your victory here in Pennsylvania? Uh, probably just that you got to work really hard and every single vote really does count. After another rejection in Pennsylvania courts, Republicans are asking for help once again from the nation's highest court. Yesterday, U.S. Representative Mike Kelly from Northwestern Pennsylvania and other plaintiffs asked the high court to prevent the state from certifying any contest from the November 3rd election. Congressman Connor Lamb is expected to launch his bid for Senate this week. The Democrat represents the state's 17th district, covering most of Pittsburgh's northwestern suburbs. I wanted to point out to all these great lovers and supporters of the Pennsylvania legislature that it was the Republican Pennsylvania legislature that passed a Republican bill that they all voted for and supported that set up the system under which we just ran the election. Hi, I'm Representative Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania, running for the U.S. Senate to protect our democracy and the Constitution, which includes a woman's right to choose. And for me, I've had to learn a lot about what that really means in people's lives in these four years that I've been a member of Congress. I was raised Catholic, and I know what my church teaches, and I believed it. But when I became a candidate, I started to meet people who had gone through these decisions in real life, women who would just come up to me and tell me about what had happened to them and the choice that they had to make, usually when they very much wanted to have children. And so I started out looking at this issue as a legal issue. The Constitution requires the right to choose, and of course I support that. But I came to understand that it was a moral issue in a very different way. The church tends to present it in black and white. And so now I very much believe a woman has a right to choose and should, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides today. I'm about a block uh, away from where those protests are taking place right now. So one of the things we worked on is getting a bill into law called the Women's Health Protection Act that would codify Roe v. Wade. 
and lock in a woman's right to choose through Congress. We've passed it in the House, of course. And one of the things that will be determined by my Senate race is whether we have the votes to pass that in the Senate, which I would love to do. It's not an easy issue for a Catholic, for a guy from the part of the country that I'm from. But sorry, not sorry, I support a woman's right to choose. Connor, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. And I want to talk about your candidacy. But before we get there, I want to talk to you a bit about you. Tell our listeners a bit about who you are. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, one of four kids. I went to Catholic school my whole life, played sports, very kind of normal middle America upbringing, I guess. Went to school out in Philadelphia and then immediately into law school afterward. Then I decided to become a Marine officer, which was a little, I would say, unexpected. We weren't like a military family or anything. And, but we were a family where everyone pretty much does public service of some kind. My brothers are teachers. My mom is a nurse. I have an uncle as a social worker, a couple people who've been in politics. And I just thought that was my way at that time to try to give back to the country and learn a few things. And I mostly worked as a prosecutor in the military justice system, did a lot of rape and sexual assault cases. Tell us about that experience before you go on. You served as a judge advocate where you prosecuted sexual harassment and assault cases. Tell us a bit about that experience. It was hard work and very eye-opening for me. The basic rape or sexual assault case in the military is two people in a dark room with zero eyewitnesses. And once you get to trial, one of those people is the defendant and doesn't have to testify. So generally, these trials revolve all around the victim and really play out almost as a constant attack on the victim's character and credibility. And you're almost in a more defensive frame of mind where you're trying to support these victims and show how their story is consistent with all the other evidence. It is just such a unique type of crime in the way that it affects the mentality of the victims and robs them of their self-confidence, affects their memory. The trauma that they experience is just very unique compared to the other types of trauma people experience in crimes. And then if you add all the cultural stuff not just about the military, but the Marine Corps in particular, is a very overwhelmingly male institution. And the victims typically were female, although I had male and male cases as well. I even had one female and female case. It just really would often be a, a more senior ranked defendant accused of assaulting a more junior ranked Marine. The sad truth is you're more likely to be sexually assaulted by a fellow service member than be shot by an enemy at war. My assault occurred. Two sexual assaults and... They started sodomizing me. Thousands of service members report being raped and sexually assaulted each year, but only a fraction of those cases end in a conviction. The problem is, almost all the authority lies in the hands of commanders. It's like you have to tell your boss that you were raped by a colleague, and then they have the power to decide whether to dole out justice. One of my missions, one of my many missions, as you know, is is to try to get rid of the Ferris Doctrine, which has been used to prevent survivors of military sexual trauma from suing the government. What are your thoughts on the Ferris Doctrine? What do you think should happen with that? I think that could be a good accountability measure for this specific problem. But I would also say that while I was on active duty, we built a lot of capacity inside the military itself to get better at dealing with this in the front end. And that is probably the experience I would bring to it of, of trying to do Some of the things that Senator Gillibrand and others have really pushed on reforming military justice itself so that victims are treated right from the beginning and they don't have to sue afterward to try to get justice, but they actually get it on the front end. And we're perfectly capable of that. So I think we should demand that. Okay, so go back. You join the military right out of college. 
at a law school, actually. So I was like 25 and coming from an Ivy League law school, which is makes the Marine Corps basic training a culture shock. But it's an incredible organization and it really did a lot for me that I don't think any other experience in life could have. Uh, served for four years on active duty and then ultimately became a federal prosecutor back in Pittsburgh, where I was doing a lot of violent crime and drug prosecutions. This was in the Obama administration. So it was a good time to do that work because we were very much focused on people who were committing violence, people who were killing other people with fentanyl and heroin, and at the same time, really trying to do reform, get people who did nonviolent drug crimes out of jail earlier, rehabilitated. It was a very balanced and good approach to criminal justice at that time. I just feel like all of that work would be so hard just hard. But was that your experience where you would just wake up and be like, I cannot believe that I have to go to a job that, or or was it that the rewards outweighed the heaviness of it? No, it was hard. And I think honestly, to be a good prosecutor, you have to experience it as hard. People who are cowboys or, you know, constantly bragging about how long of a sentence they got for someone or whatever, that's really not what the job is. The job is supposed to be to do justice. And so it's a really hard thing to watch somebody who you've just convicted get sentenced. In the military, a lot of the people that I convicted were going to lose their military career on top of going to jail and probably have to register as sex offenders. And it's tough. You end up seeing your family members sit next to you in court for weeks and cry and beg you to change your mind. I mean, it's difficult, but it has to be done. And so I always felt a sense of responsibility to try to be the one who did it in the fairest way. And that's the challenge of the job. And that's why you can have a lot of pride in that job if you feel like you did it right. I mean, the numbers are just staggering. Nearly a quarter of women who serve in uniform report being sexually assaulted. Why do you think sexual abuse is so common in the military? And what do we need to do to stop it? One thing that I think surprises people is that military is very much reflects our society in terms of the way people commit crimes. One of the things that's different about the military, particularly I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan, overseas, where we were much more confined to base. A lot more crimes are caught because you have sort of a built-in enforcement structure around otherwise 18 and 19-year-old kids who do all the same things that, that young people do in society, but don't always get caught at. Part of it is a culture of machismo and chauvinism and things that motivate particularly men to commit these kind of crimes. And the same culture creates even higher obstacles for particularly female victims to report in the first instance and be listened to and taken seriously, even if they do. And that is, that is I would say, harder in an organization like the Marine Corps than the civilian world, because you're very much going against the rank structure and the, just the general feeling of the people you're around. You, as a Marine, the last thing you ever want to do is complain or highlight yourself in a victim frame of mind. Everything is about being tough, strong, self-sufficient, a team player, a part of the crowd. And so it just is a culture in which this is a really hard problem. It also is a culture where people are trained to follow rules and follow what their leaders tell them. And so when you get a good leader who understands this problem and can instill it in a particular command that it won't be tolerated, you can make an enormous difference in this problem in a way that goes beyond what you can do in the civilian world. So there's a little bit of both there. And then at some point you decide, I'm going to run for Congress. Yeah, that was very unexpected for me. I love politics and government and all that kind of thing, but I, I really liked being a prosecutor and that was kind of a dream come true for me. So this is what, what like 2017? Yeah, it was the fall of 2017. And in our case, the congressman who represented me was a Republican and he resigned very suddenly. He was a, a supposedly pro-life Catholic Republican 
who believed that one of his multiple mistresses was pregnant and encouraged her to get an abortion. And when that became public, he resigned almost immediately. This Pennsylvania Republican caught in a sex scandal, Congressman Tim Murphy effectively gave two weeks notice. He's out of Congress effective October 21st. I think it's appropriate that he um, moves on to the next chapter of his life. Congressman Murphy is known for his anti-abortion views. I don't know if women who go in for abortion really know what happened. But this week, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette published text messages between him and his former mistress, making it clear that while he's against abortion, he wanted her to have one. And so it was a district that Trump had won by 19 percentage points just a year before. So there wasn't like a huge or deep Democratic field of people that wanted to run. And I just I'd been thinking during that year about the fact that Western Pennsylvania had been this really strong Democratic area for a long time. And Trump flipped a lot of those people and Western Pennsylvania, as much as any place in the country, gave him that first victory. And I just always I had been gnawing at me all year that I felt like I could do something about that if given the chance, like the people who had switched to him, that I could give them a different side of the story and maybe get them back. And when that congressional seat came open, I just went for it. Why do you think people switched to Trump? I think initially in, in 2016, there's a way of looking at the economy in Western Pennsylvania and saying that the kind of Clinton era, free trade, pro-finance, pro-internet type of emphasis in our economy was just not that good for communities that had grown up by digging coal, making steel, but doing kind of old 20th century industrial type of stuff. So I think there were people who basically heard what Trump was saying, and even if they didn't take him all that literally, they thought in general, maybe it would be good to try him just to see if we could get things moving. And in a lot of these towns that I've represented, there hasn't been much economic growth at all in 40 years. Incomes have been flat that entire time. They've seen industry left. Things look literally rusted in a lot of these places. And so it was a gasp for something fresh and different for a lot of these people. And I think many of them came to regret, honestly. And and when I ran, I think a lot of people came back to vote for me as a Democrat in part to balance out what they had just done. My next question would be, do you think that we as a country have done enough or continue to do something about the shift in the economy and the changing economy? I think the answer to that is absolutely not. Probably not for lack of good intentions. It's, it's not an easy thing to do to go through any kind of transition of this nature. But I can just tell you from being on the ground in a place, you know, I don't represent the city of Pittsburgh, which has modernized and kept up actually really well, better than most of its peers. I represent all the areas outside of it, you know, from a half an hour to an hour or two outside of it, where you still have these hulking old steel mills and, and copper mills and power plants and stuff that have shut down. And basically the answer to that the first time around was quote unquote retraining, which was never executed in a serious way. And to the extent that it was offered, it was always for jobs that weren't in Western Pennsylvania. Like they told all these coal miners that I represented that they could become uh, software coders. And somebody asked, where are the jobs for software coders? And they said, oh, Southern California, Arizona, places like that. And my family's lived here for five generations. Like, we want to stay here. We, all my kids play high school football here. And that's the part we haven't really fixed. And it requires some choices about the way we make investments. I do think President Biden has done more in the infrastructure bill and related Build Back Better than anyone else has in my lifetime. And if anything gives us a chance to turn this around, it's that.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think it's a shame that it took so long and so many forgotten cities throughout the country to get it to this place. It's something that drives me a little nuts because I feel like other countries have done a much better job at predicting the way the economy is going to go, the way jobs are going to go, and have been able to sustain and also grow. When you look at the poverty rates in this country, when you look at the food deserts, specifically in these areas where these warehouses were shut down and industries were just taken away from the pulse of a city, you've got big problems. And I think that we're still seeing the effects of that. And I think in a lot of ways, I look at the pandemic as almost, and I know there's been so much suffering and not to take away um, anyone's pain, but I do think that we couldn't ignore the problems anymore in this country that we were facing. And the only way out was in, basically. And we had to go down to the bare minimum in order to grow. And I think that's where we are now. You've been in Congress since 2018, but you've had to win that seat three times because of a special election. That's a lot of campaigning. (laughs) What has campaigning that much taught you about your state of Pennsylvania? Above all, it has taught me that The landscape of voters, the actual people who are pulling the lever every time, when you see them as up close as I have, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of conversations in that time, they are way more complex and nuanced and even open-minded. I know that might be hard to believe. Then they come across when you just see the sort of electoral map on Steve Kornacki's show the night of the election, and you've got like the red counties and the blue counties, and that's pretty much it. And that's how in an individual race, like my first special election, you can go from Trump plus 19 points to Connor Lamb plus 700 votes, like in basically a little over a year. Lamb was also able to win over voters like retired steelworker Anthony Ross, who had abandoned the Democratic Party. And why'd you leave? The Democratic Party? Because they forgot the working people. They, They forgot the people that they buttered our bread. Democrats need to flip 23 seats to take back the House. And whether they can depends on taking the lessons from Pennsylvania to heart. What do you think Democrats in Washington should learn from Connor Lamb? They should come back to the grassroots and and go up and down these streets and come in these diners and find out what reality really is. So there is clearly a trend in a way that people usually vote, but there's a chance to get in front of people and change the conversation with them if you do it the right way. Um, And you need a lot of things that go right and you need good people working with you and all the rest. But it makes me actually hopeful in a time that we know a lot of our fate is going to have to do with whether people will listen to us about the significance of the infrastructure and build back better and the rescue plan. I serve with people who think that it just doesn't matter, that people's vote is essentially already baked in no matter what we do, and it's just going to be how it's going to be next year. And that just isn't my experience. I think people will listen to us and give us a chance. 
my experience with Build Back Better is that there's so much in it that people do not know what's in it. And then once you tell them what's in it, they're all for it. So we have to do a better job at educating and empowering people to know what it's going to do for them. And then they need to feel that difference. You know, politics is personal for all of the country. And so I really believe that when there is personal growth, when there's uh, stability, when you could get food on the table, when you could afford to get that tire fixed, that's when people take notice of what is happening in Washington. The other end of that is when people are, are struggling. And it seems like the government isn't willing to help or do anything other than make billionaires more money. Why, though? Why is Pennsylvania? Why is Pennsylvania so important to the rest of the nation in the midterm elections? We always pretty much have been a swing state to one degree or another. And obviously, in these presidential races, Pennsylvania gets a lot of attention. Our congressional delegation is evenly divided at 9-9. You know, we're just kind of a 50-50 state by nature. But then I would say that we have a Senate that is locked at 50-50. And the people listening to your show will know we don't even have all 50 on our side every day. And so this Senate race in Pennsylvania is probably our top opportunity among two or three to pick up a seat because we have a retiring Republican senator, Pat Toomey, is not running yet. So it's an open seat and it's a chance to put a D in where an R was and change the equation. That's always important, but I would say now it's of ultimate importance because of this whole question of the filibuster and the way that the filibuster, uh, supported by one or two Democratic senators and all the Republicans, is holding up things like voting rights, things like labor rights and the PRO Act, a woman's right to choose, uh, gun safety measures. And, uh, you know, I'm someone who has said at the beginning, I would set aside the filibuster. I would be a vote for those things on a majority basis, which I think is what the nation deserves and what people actually want. So we need one or two Senate seats to make that happen. So it's even more important this year than it normally would be. And why are you the right person to hold that seat? Well, the question you get in the Democratic primary that I'm now in is we want to nominate the person who has the best chance of winning. That's what we care about. We know that all of you guys are good Democrats and on these key issues, a lot of you would probably cast the same vote. Who can win? And that is, I think, where I have the strongest argument, just because I've done that. As you noted, I'm 3-0 and in the course of two years, all on Republican turf, all with President Trump there personally campaigning against me. He's come every time. He's given me the nickname. He's sent all his family members. They've spent tens of millions of dollars against me. There was a lot of foolishness in this election and a lot of really cartoonish campaigning. And I think by the time of the president's visit last weekend, people were kind of tired of that entire approach. I mean, I had people, especially elderly people, coming up to me almost every day and just saying, man, I hate those ads against you. It's not right. It's not worthy of us. And so I, I think there was just a little bit of burnout on, on that type of campaigning before the president ever got here. And that's not an experience that many people have had. No one else in my race has had it. So they're good people, of course. But I, I think it's always important to remember that it takes a lot of discipline and focus and experience to learn how, the, how to win these close races. And you don't want to find anything new out about your candidate in the course of the general election. Uh, you can't about me because they've already said everything they could say while they were trying to kill me off each one of these times. Um, that's also a risk with other people in the race. Yeah. And also, there's still misconceptions out there because part of when you and I started talking, I was like, are you pro-choice? What's your deal? And you were misrepresented in the media. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, when, when I first ran, it was this very Trump district, and 
I got a sense early that the, first of all, the national media didn't even really show up to our race until the last week. And so that was my first experience with how they have a narrative that they want to sell to their readership about a situation. And they just selectively tend to pick facts that, that fit that. And so the, the narrative they liked about our race was that a not only was a Democrat going to pull off an upset, but that I was a different type of Democrat than the national Democrat, which is true in a certain way. And that was how I campaigned. I was a campaign. I'm a Pennsylvania Democrat. I'm going to represent you. I'm always going to put the district first. But that led to a lot of confusion on different issues where people would think, oh, he's a white Catholic moderate. So therefore, he must be pro-choice the way that Democrats from Western Pennsylvania used to be pro-choice. And I had one of these reporters ask me about late-term abortion, I think a week or so before the election. And she was very surprised when in a public and unambiguous way, I said, yeah, if it's a constitutional right, it's a right all throughout pregnancy. And of course, I support it. And there's a number of issues like that, that I think now I have three and a half years of a voting record. So I don't worry about that as much because I can always just point people to something I've actually voted for. These aren't things I'm just saying. I've voted for it in many cases, past bills because of that. The big question tonight, did it sound like to you that the justices are going to overturn Roe v. Wade? It did sound that way to me, Lindsay. Um, You know, there are now six staunch conservative justices on the Supreme Court, which means you don't even need to keep all of the conservative justices in order to reach a conservative outcome. So even if there, you know, are one or two, one justice who is, you know, a little bit equivocating, all you need is five conservative justices to, you know, not just uphold the Mississippi law, but I think go further and overturn Roe and Casey. And it seemed to me that it was pretty easy to count to five today. You mentioned being a Pennsylvania Democrat. What does that mean to you? What it means to me is a real focus on jobs. I like to talk about jobs. You'll hear people talk about bread and butter, economic issues, kitchen table issues, whatever. That's all true. I think jobs for me are a more specific reference point because there are certain industries and types of jobs that are just much more common in Pennsylvania and aren't necessarily the case everywhere. Take, for example, being a steel worker or being an iron worker or trying to think of another good example. Uh, Even the remaining coal miners, people in heavy industry, that doesn't exist in every state. Natural gas has been a really big economic boom for our state. And a lot of union Democratic workers do work related to that. To me, a Pennsylvania Democrat says, okay, we have some environmental concerns here, of course, but these are also jobs that are putting food on people's table today. And we need to balance those two things. And we need to keep these people on our side, first and foremost. The coal miners, the steel workers, all these people who Trump flipped in to a certain degree were the bedrock of the Democratic Party for a long time in a place like mine. And and I think that to govern effectively, we have to get back to that. Then I would just add that there is, I'm often described as a moderate. It's not my favorite word, but I think, I guess it could be accurate. There is a tradition of who Pennsylvania elects at the state level that is very moderate on both sides of the aisle. On the Democratic side, you have people like Bob Casey. You have President Biden, a native Pennsylvania, winning our state by 80,000. On the Republican side, you have Arlen Specter, who became a Democrat. You have Tom Ridge, who endorsed Biden. It's people, the way our state votes tends to hew a little bit more to what you think of as the center. I hate all of the labels. I think we should create a movement to get rid of all of the labels. We are what we believe in, and we should vote reflective of that belief. But these labels, I think, are more reason to create divisiveness and make it so easy. It makes it so easy for CNN to say that the Democratic Party is in disarray because the progressives and the moderates aren't seeing eye to eye. It's just, it's a lot. 
the only institution that is served by that distinction is the media because it makes it easier for them to tell their stories. But I think as Democrats, I always come back to the fact that to succeed in our system of government, the Democrats need more than 51% of legislators, of the American people, whatever. I mean, in order to get stuff through the House, the Senate, signed by the president, implemented effectively in the state, we have to build a very large coalition behind the things that we believe in. And we have to do it on a very regular basis to have the time it takes to get things done. And so that task of, of building the kind of biggest tent possible is just not really served by constantly subdividing our identity into a progressive Democrat, a moderate Democrat, this thing. We just have to all be Democrats. You mentioned Biden being a moderate. He's a moderate, but he's fighting for, quote, unquote, progressive policy. So, you know, it, what does it mean? It just gives people a, an easier way to divide us. And speaking of division, <laughs> over the, the past year, the Pennsylvania government has made some news because of some GOP attempts to overturn the election. So in your opinion, how much at risk is our democracy? And I don't know, what role does Pennsylvania have in protecting it? I think that our democracy is more at risk than I realized, even coming out of the 2020 campaign. I think January 6th and then the treatment of the Republicans since then, you know, how they treat January 6th, the way they try to cover it up and minimize it and lie about it at their highest possible levels, the constant the constant focus on these, the word they use is audits. It's not an accurate word. The efforts in Wisconsin recently, I mean, it really is taking over a lot of states to essentially try to take the vote counting and election winning function away from just the, the normal democratic process and put it in the hands of these state legislatures controlled by Republicans. That's an attack on our system as January 6th was. And a lot of the reporting has come out now to fill in the causes of that event. And as our commission continues its work, that'll become more and more public. But that wasn't like a random riot or an accident or people that just got angry and out of line. Like the whole thing was planned and executed and driven by Trump himself with the specific goal of overturning the election. That's really unthinkable. And they have now instituted support of that as a requirement for holding any office of significance in their party. So it tells you, obviously, that whether it's he or someone else that runs again in 2024, they're heading in the same direction. That's their goal. And they're going to do everything to shape the battlefield for that to happen. These audits, in a large way, are just loyalty tests. I don't think they actually expect to use an audit like the one they're doing in Pennsylvania to change the election result for 2020. I think what they're doing is signing people up to the cause for 2024 by getting them on the record on this stuff now get a, a requirement for their primaries and for elections and all that sort of thing. Obviously, Pennsylvania is probably one of the biggest battlegrounds because we are one of the most closely contested states for both the Senate and the governor next year. And we're a swing state in the presidential races. And so who wins our governor's race next year is going to mean a lot for whether we conduct a fair election. And obviously on questions like voting rights, reforming the Electoral Count Act, protecting democracy with H.R. 1, 
we can't do that until we get another Senate seat or two. And Pennsylvania is one of the top opportunities for that. So I would say we're pretty much at the top of the list of places where uh, this democracy can be won or lost. Tell us about your personal experience on January 6th. I didn't go into the chamber until nighttime. Oh, yes. And, and we all know what happened then. It's not as if there's nothing we can do because of that. And if there was, I don't think this nation would have made it to almost 250 years. The fact is, Madam Speaker, the fact is that at the end of the day, people... Gentleman will say his point of order. Yes, ma'am. Point of order. The gentleman said that there were lies on the floor here today. Looking over this direction, I ask that those words be taken down. We may have a disagree- disagreement of, on a on matters, but this demand is not timely. The gentleman's demand was not timely. You didn't uh, register an, an appropriate time. The gentleman will proceed. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Madam Speaker, the fact is that at the end of the day... Yeah, look, you, look, talk, you sad, say that about true. me every single day. So the truth hurts. Hold your tongue. The gentleman will proceed. I had to sit there for a few hours and listen to these guys make uh, speeches about all kind of things that had nothing to do with the attack that took place that day. It was all about state legislatures and the Constitution and this, that, and the other thing. And Matt Gates got up and, and blamed the whole thing on Antifa. And yeah, I will admit that sitting through all that, I just, I couldn't believe it. I just, as someone who served in the military, you know, spent a lot of time literally raising and lowering in the flag in the morning and at night as a ritual of your service, sitting there that whole day and watching what I consider a foreign flag fly all around our capital, which is the Trump flag. And then they even carried the Confederate flag through the halls, which never even happened in the Civil War. State of mind that I was in was of defense against being attacked. And Well, for those that don't know, when the House came back into session, you rightfully called out Republicans for spreading the election lies that fueled the insurrection. And then like a fist fight nearly broke out on the House floor when you did. And Republicans have shared videos of themselves murdering members of Congress. Others seem to be proud of Islamophobia, transphobia, racism, and misogyny, and more of the ugliest human traits. And the GOP leaders seem to just not give a shit at all. So do you think Congress can be fixed? I do. Uh, I, first of all, I don't, I don't see what choice we have. You know, sometimes we talk about it from the outside looking in. Can we fix this? It's ours. Congress is ours. The Constitution is ours. As Americans first, not just like Democrats or progressives or whatever, but just as Americans. Like, I've taken that same oath to the Constitution in four different jobs that I've had, including Congress, military officer, prosecutor. That's your first loyalty. And there's just no way to look at what they did on January 6th or how they're acting now and believe that they're living up to the oath that we all took to the Constitution. And so that's where all this starts. And to me, it's non-negotiable. So I don't worry about can it be fixed. I worry about how are we going to fix it and what do I have to do to fix it? And I think basically what we have to do is run and win a bunch of hard elections in a bunch of difficult and competitive places until the Republican side becomes convinced that that Trump and Trumpism is a permanently losing strategy for them. And they sort of pick up the pieces and Maybe some of the voters that Trump brought into the system go home. I don't know how exactly it ends, but I do know that we have to stick together 
And we have to work a lot harder to turn out our voters, win elections in a basically a rigged system in a lot of these states. I get it. But we won't really get to the systematic reforms until we have a few more seats in the Senate and and find a way to hold on to the House. What will you do to help fix what's broken in America as a senator? I think the most direct and immediate thing that I can do is uh, vote to set aside the filibuster and pass H.R. 4, is what it's called for us, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That's the quickest and most important thing, because that lets the federal government go into these states that are doing all these crazy things to limit people's right to vote and let state officials overturn elections and just stop that. Then there's obviously a deeper layer of things we need to do that's reflected in things like the Freedom to Vote Act and what we passed in the House, H.R. 1, that have to do with gerrymandering, campaign finance, and and a lot of the deeper structural issues about our democracy. There's questions like D.C. being admitted as a state and being able to be represented. We have to do something about the fact that the Republican Party is not only anti-democratic with a small d at this point, they also are trying to govern the nation with a clear minority of people. And they're using things like the Senate in the Electoral College to accomplish that. And it's not right. And people will not stand for that in the long run. And so some of these reforms that we have are, are very crucial, but there's a chicken and egg problem, obviously, that they're trying to keep us from getting there by rigging the very elections that we need to win those votes. And so we've just got to outwork that. And look, I always come back to, we named the Voting Rights Act after John Lewis, right? And he was a guy who literally almost got killed over that very issue. And you think about how dark and dim it would have looked to him in 1963 and 64. And then all of a sudden, you've got a voting rights act in 65. And it's not done, but that's a major milestone. And so that, that thinking of it's always darkest just before the dawn, some of our heroes have gone through this before, and we can look to their example for perseverance. I got arrested in front of the White House about six weeks ago for the Voting Rights Act. Um, And it was my first time being arrested, and I just felt like it was that important to march right up to the White House and demand that Biden follow through with the promises that he made in securing voting rights. It is so important right now. And the other thing I think that's on everybody's mind right now is the right to abortion. And it's literally at the most risk, and we briefly touched on this before, it's at the most risk it's been in my lifetime. What do you think the federal government's role is in protecting abortion access for women? I think our role as members of Congress is to lock into place the rights reflected in Roe v. Wade. We relied on the judiciary for a long time for that, and I think everybody knew that it was a bit of a risky strategy. Now, there's almost no Supreme Court case that has ever been upheld as many times as Roe v. Wade is. So in a functioning democratic system, you shouldn't have to worry about it, but obviously we do. We voted for a bill in the House called the Women's Health Protection Act that would actually lock that into place through Congress. And then you don't have to worry about how the court decides. Uh, I think that's what we need to do. It's an issue of health care. And the government has a big role to play in health care, particularly as it relates to the poorest, most vulnerable people in our society. And that's who this is about. The Republicans can pretend they're defending innocent victims, as they put it. But really, the victims of this are women who are not wealthy enough to travel out of their state. And we know that putting laws like this into place take a woman's chance of surviving a difficult pregnancy and and just multiply, I guess, divide it by a large number and make it much less likely that she'll survive. And I mentioned in the introduction being a Catholic and raised Catholic, and I will say that in my Catholic education, concern for the poor and mercy for people who are living in difficult situations was essentially the number one message that Jesus both preached and practiced throughout his life. And it's what we were taught. So, you know, that's sort of how I come at it. I was raised Catholic, too, and I concur. 
Tell my listeners how they can support your campaign. Uh, we have a website, connorlam.com, uh, that pretty much lays out everything you could possibly want to do to help us. And you can follow me on social media like everybody else. There are practical realities as they relate to fundraising, but also just the grassroots measures of of being the type of people that help out with postcards at election time and phone calling and texting. And, and that has to become really a way of life for us. So many people have started doing that for the first time since 2018. And I'm a living example of how that works in a very tough race. I won by 700 votes, and there's no way we would have done it if people all over the country weren't sending their one and two dollars, sending postcards to the people that live in my district. We have to go in all in that every time in every race. When we do, we win typically. When we don't, we lose. So that's the biggest way you can really help us. And I think we have to all stick up for each other like that year in and year out. And finally, what gives you hope? I think what what gives me the most hope is what I mentioned about having the experience of serving with a guy like John Lewis. We've been through tough times as a country before. This often seems like the worst it could possibly be. And people on our side who have worked so hard for the last three, four, five years at fighting out individual campaigns and trying to build democracy in in communities where that's tough, they get down at, at all the things that we face. People like him were willing to die for what they believed in. I was able to hear him speak about this enough and Mr. Clyburn as well and people like them. It just became a way of life for them, living for the democracy every day, getting up and working for it and never losing hope. And and I think if if they were able to do it and, and all these years later tell us that it's still worthwhile, we better listen. Well, Connor Lamb, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you. I'm Connor Lamb. I talk with Pennsylvanians every day who've come to believe that our democracy is in crisis. And they're right. The other side denies reality and worships Trump. They're making it harder to vote and lying about our elections. Well, I swore an oath to protect the Constitution as a Marine, as a prosecutor, and as a member of Congress. And I will keep that oath. So later today, I'm announcing my candidacy for the U.S. Senate. I believe this is the most important Senate seat in the country. We have to build on our majority and tell the truth about what's really going on in people's lives. We need to raise pay for working people, protect your retirement, and make sure you have health care when you need it. All of these issues are on the line next year, and our opponents will lie about them, just like they lie about elections. Donald Trump knows how important Pennsylvania is. He's come here to campaign against me three elections in a row, and each time, with your help, we've won. These are serious times, and we won't win this race on Twitter. We'll win it going town by town, talking to people, and listening. That starts today. We plan to visit a dozen counties in the next week alone. I hope you'll follow along at ConnorLamb.com. Our democracy was born in Pennsylvania, and I'm running because I believe Pennsylvania can save it. Well, if the last year has taught us anything about Washington, it's that a one-vote majority is not a functional majority in the Senate. Because of the racist and unnecessary filibuster and the political bullshit of one or two Democrats, much of President Biden's agenda for the American people has been hard to get done. We need a majority that makes obstructionists irrelevant, and we can't get there without Pennsylvania. The midterm elections are already on us. The first primaries happen on March 1st, just a few short months away. It's about to get intense, and I hope you're ready. 
Our nation cannot afford to let the GOP take control of Congress. We've seen how bad that is for America. We've seen how they refuse to hold themselves and their worst members accountable. We've seen how they put special interests over people. America is in such a fragile place right now, and a Republican Congress could shatter us. Get ready. Researcher candidates, start volunteering. If you don't, it will be too late. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.